You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast, and on today's episode, a case of COVID-19 in Manitoba has been traced to a long-haul truck driver. One federal NDP member of Parliament is calling for the government to implement testing for all drivers crossing the U.S.-Canada border. Also, WorkSafe BC has released guidelines for the film industry. What will it look like for the next few weeks and months? And anyone with a compromised immune system is at an increased risk when it comes to the coronavirus, but some New research shows Canadians are consuming more alcohol, cannabis, and junk food. How do we stay healthy during the pandemic? That and much more coming up right here on the Mornings with Simi podcast. Well, you might have heard this in the news. After 33 seasons, yes, 33 seasons, COPS has been dropped by the Paramount Network as protests against police around the world continue. Uh, COPS will not continue on that network. If you're wondering, like I was, did it really run for 33 seasons? Well, yes, it ran on the Fox Network for 25 years until 2013. Viacom owned Spike TV, then picked it up, and then the show remained on the air after Spike was rebranded as the Paramount Network in 2018. But no more cops. Now, in case you're not familiar with the show, it has a theme song that you undoubtedly know very, very well. Let's bring in CKNW Mornings contributor Nikki Reitmeyer to talk a little bit more about this. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Yeah, I don't know if there's a soul in North America that doesn't immediately recognize that song when they hear it. Exactly. But I think there will be other people like me. I recognize the song. I know it's affiliated with the TV show, but I've never actually watched a full episode of the show. What? Never. Never. (laughs) Come on. It was on for three decades. I know. Oh, man. The show was nuts. It was nuts. I mean, we watched it. We watched it growing up, and yeah, certainly when you reflect back on it, you know, did it sort of glorify police aggression? In some ways, yeah, it did, and it certainly profited off the the suffering of the of the suspects that they were arresting. And yeah, you can you can definitely make those arguments. But you know, man, when we were younger, watching it, sometimes you'd be laughing because the suspect would take off, and the cameraman would take off. And the cop would be like a block behind. The cameraman in half the cases would outrun the cop and he'd be chasing after the suspect. He'd, the suspect would go over a fence. The cameraman would go over a fence. Like the show, it really was. It was nuts to watch. It was car crash TV at its finest in those early days. Yeah, I, I guess so. And I can see the draw of that. I mean, how many people in real life get to tag along with police when they go on these, these chases? You would know this more than me, as I've admitted, not watching it. Where did it, where did it take place? Was it all over the place? or did they focus on certain areas? Hmm, okay, it's been a few years <laughs> since since I watched an episode, to be fair. I wa- and someone may correct me on this, but I want to say it was in different... It was in different cities or in different states. I think that they kind of stuck to, oh, I want to say California, but I, I could be right. wrong. Yeah, someone someone might be able to correct me on that. I feel like it was in different cities from time to time, from episode to episode, but yeah, I, I could be corrected on that. It did inspire... Um, other spinoff shows, though, right? It was sort of one of the first shows where we got to see behind the scenes what was happening with with police. And that car crash TV definitely, I think, drew a lot of people in. Uh, and then it went on to inspire other shows like Live PD. I know that one's been on TV more recently. Have you seen that one at all? No. <laughs> it's... <laughs> 
look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to criticize you for not watching this. Like, you know, it's not one of this, it's not like a Netflix show. And someone right. goes, oh my God, I can't believe you. You haven't seen Breaking Bad. No, this is terrible television. So if you haven't seen these shows, you know, you're not missing too much. But uh, Live PD, actually, interestingly enough, came under fire recently because uh, a black man died while being arrested during the filming of that show. Uh, so you can see, you know, how these shows could be problematic. Uh, and also, if they're glorifying anything and that, that what's come to light of late, maybe if people didn't know what was happening or if we talk about how certain groups are targeted and maybe maybe unjustly by police officers. I mean, there's two camps, two ways of looking at it, I think. In one, that it glorifies this type of work and it, it, it makes light of it. People are kicking back and laughing as they watch it. But then the more serious, too, and that incident that you talked about uh, in, in Austin that was caught by the live PD cameras. Uh, But things are caught on camera too. I mean, look at the George Floyd death. The reason we know exactly what happened was because it was caught on camera and that's become a part of the story. Yeah, I think that there is sort of two sides to this. On the one hand, you could say, well, the cameras were rolling the whole time. So there is some accountability to what the police officers were doing. I mean, this is well before we had body cams. You had a full camera crew chasing after a suspect along with a police officer. So we did get to see what was what was happening, at least, you know, the edited version that was then put on put on television in the case of cops. But you had an opportunity to witness the arrest. And thus, you could argue, perhaps there was some accountability to the police officer as they were being filmed. But on the other end of the spectrum, you could say that, you know, maybe the police were a bit more amped up. Maybe they were, uh, you know, in some cases, excited by the camera crew's presence. And maybe they were going, you know, one step above what they normally would have do because or they would do because they were, you know, kind of jacked up and excited by the presence of this, this camera crew there. And they felt like they needed to put on a bit of a show. So yeah, I think that there is sort of two sides to that for sure. I'm wondering, you talk about the spinoff shows and how that was kind of the first, like you said, car crash TV. Uh, I have seen a few episodes of Border Security, which is similar in that we're talking about enforcement at an enforcement agency and stopping people. Uh, But I wonder too, I mean, that show has come under scrutiny in the past for privacy concerns. and, and and, And I'm always amazed the people who allowed themselves to not be pixelated and be on that show but you had to sign a consent form to do it all right kudos to you but i always find that so weird too eh? when you watch that show and you go look you know you were just arrested for or you know detained at the border for bring smuggling in i don't know turtles and and a suitcase full of meat why are you letting yourself be shown on tv yeah. pixelate your face <laughs> You have the option of being anonymous. Why are you not taking that? Uh, It was cancelled, though, because of a ruling of privacy on on breaching of the privacy rights of people. I actually didn't know that the show was cancelled. I believe it was. I'd have to go back. I'm pretty sure that's what happened uh, with border security. But I think we're probably going to see more scrutiny. I mean, I I saw earlier today one particular platform is not going to show the 1939 movie Gone with the Wind anymore because it's not historically historically accurate, which has started a whole other discussion on do we hold films of the 1930s up to today's standards? Do they not spark a bigger conversation? But uh, going back to cops, I wonder if there are any other programs or similar type programs that we're also going to see cancelled. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, especially like you said with, with Gone with the Wind. When we look at shows in retrospect, as we have been doing with a, with a lot in our society, and you know we've been having these conversations about statues for some time, when you look at things in retrospect, 
they don't necessarily come across in the best light. And is it time to update ourselves? I think with the example of cops, yeah, it definitely had its time and place. But, you know, the more we know now about the suffering of certain demographics, you go, yeah, you know, maybe us getting a kick sitting on our couches while we're watching a, a suspect suffering while they're being arrested isn't exactly the best kind of TV that we want to have in our society. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't be too surprised if we did start to see more shows like that getting cancelled. Uh, it's amazing that it ran for as long as it did. What was it 32 33 years? seasons. 33 seasons. I was trying to think, what <laughs> is the longest running TV show? And I did a bit of Googling mm. on this to see, you know, kind of where cops fell into the, the broader spectrum. And it's tough to get a definitive lift, list of exactly what the longest running TV show is because, you know, every time you Google, you know, one category, another one comes up. No, this is the longest running the Simpsons has to TV be in there or. somewhere, right? Simpsons was in there 32 years, mm. at least for the list that I saw. Um, the Guiding Light, <laughs> 72 years, 72 oh. years. Uh, Meet the Press, first broadcast in 1947. The Tonight Show. Uh, Coronation Street has been on for 60 years. General Hospital's up there. If anybody has a guess at what they think is the longest running TV show, I'd love to hear it because I couldn't really find a definitive answer. So I'd be really curious. Call the buzz line and let me know. All right. Sounds good. Nikki, on that note, thank you so much. We'll talk to you a bit later. Thanks, Jill. <laughs> that is CKNW Mornings contributor Nikki Reitmeyer. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, a case of COVID-19 in Manitoba has now been traced to a long-haul truck driver. Two cases actually related to that one particular case. Now a federal NDP member of Parliament, Don Davies, is calling on government to bring in automatic testing, mandatory testing for drivers that are crossing back and forth between Canada and the United States. Well, let's bring in BC Trucking Association President Dave Earle. He is on the line with us to talk more about that. Dave, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, how concerned are you hearing about this case in Manitoba and that there could possibly be more truck drivers that maybe have the virus and don't know? Well, as you can appreciate, uh, this has been our number one concern all the way uh, through this pandemic is to ensure the safety of uh, the drivers that are providing the essential goods that you and I rely on every day. So uh, we've been focused on this. We have developed protocols. We've worked with the Provincial Health Office, WorkSafe BC, to ensure that we're doing everything we can to prevent this from happening. And uh, don't want to take away from the fact that they have been essential workers and, like you said, bringing people everything they need and really uh, have been so uh, essential during this pandemic. Uh, we talked to you in the beginning about this when those protocols were put in place. Uh, are you are you convinced or are you still confident that drivers are safe and they are taking those measures to stay safe? I'm absolutely confident we're doing everything we can. And I'm, I'm really encouraged, Jill, with how much that... Uh, the drivers have taken this to heart, that companies have, uh, and the real creative approaches that we're seeing to, to minimize risk. Um, I'm just really concerned along with everybody in that I, I think we're starting to understand as time passes that minimizing risk is very different than eliminating risk. What would you say then if the, the government was to bring in mandatory COVID-19 testing for truck drivers? Oh, we're absolutely willing to work with government on anything that will uh, you know, improve or, or protect the, uh, the safety of everybody working in the industry. Um, I don't know what mandatory testing would look like. Um, the testing itself um, isn't uh, an issue. The, the question is, what do you do uh, in the meantime? 
uh, you know, how do we maintain uh, the security of the supply chain while making sure that drivers are safe? Um, how do we build that testing in? So I'd be more than happy to uh, to engage in that type of conversation to figure out uh, what we can do to give more resources to uh, to drivers to make sure that they're safe. Uh, would it even be logistically possible in that drivers stick to a schedule? They have to get the goods from one place to the other. Would it even work that, or I wonder how would it work if suddenly they had to stop and work that into their schedule? Well, it depends how long the stop is, and, it, and that's that's kind of what this conversation has to be: is what would this look like? Um, you know, if we're talking about significant disruptions into their schedules, um, the supply chain uh, will have trouble. Um, you know, if, if every driver coming north and south, or frankly entering British Columbia, interprovincially, or wherever we draw that line. Um, we have to be really you know, careful about what we're doing to make sure that we're protecting everybody's safety uh, and at the same time balancing the need to be able to operate. And what do you think would happen in a scenario? Because again, we're talking about somebody who has been deemed an essential service. Uh, truckers are very uh, committed to what they're doing. But it might also be easy if a truck driver had the sniffles or maybe had a symptom. It, it might be easy to kind of shrug that off thinking, well, I'm by myself in my cab. I'm not going to expose anybody else. I'm still going to go to work. Yeah, we're not seeing that really at all because these drivers are seeing people um, regularly throughout the day. As much as they're alone most of the day, they do see people and they see shippers, they see receivers, they're in touch with dispatch, uh, they see their employers. They do see people during the day, so there is a degree of oversight. Um, and the other part of it is is drivers are acutely aware of the need to protect themselves uh, and everybody else. And uh, I'm just heartened with how much uh, work we've seen and how many drivers we've seen that are that are doing the right thing and uh, holding their hands up uh, and saying, no, um, you know, I'm not uh, feeling well and I'm not going to be able to move today. Do you know of any drivers or is there a number of drivers that have tested positive in B.C.? I don't have that data, um, you know, and I haven't asked for it. I don't know if I could get it, frankly. I don't know if it's broken down by occupation. Um, you know, we don't have a sense that there's a large number at all. Um, certainly, I'm sure there are some, just because of uh, the nature of numbers. Um, but we don't have a sense that it's a high proportion or that, frankly, any uh, drivers have tested positive. But it wouldn't surprise me. I only have about a minute left. Uh, ICBC, we still don't know when road tests are starting up again. Is this having an impact on the trucking industry? It is, Jill. Uh, one of the things that uh, has been interesting throughout this time is, uh, much like any industry, um, our members are, are suffering. Some of them are having a terrible time. Uh, others are, are doing okay. It really depends on on uh, what they're moving. Um, you know, we had a lot of retirements. We had a lot of opportunities. And uh, there is an impact. There is a backlog of drivers. Uh, there is a need for drivers. Uh, so, yeah, we're looking forward to when ICBC can uh, restart their, their program. All right, Dave, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. All right, Dave Earl is the president of the BC Trucking Association. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we are all anticipating phase three of the reopening in BC. Many people wondering, though, what exactly it will look like and what industries will be forever changed by the COVID-19 pandemic, hotels, tourism, film. We're going to talk about film a bit later on in the program. But safe to say there are some jobs that not only will be changed, they probably won't come back at all. So what's going to happen with people who have historically been working in those industries? 
let's bring in Andrew Petter, the president as of SFU, to talk a little bit more about this. Andrew Petter, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Uh, nice to be here, Jill. Uh, what opportunities do you think post-secondary institutions are going to have as we start reopening and rebuilding? Well, I think it's going to be a challenge, but one that uh, in BC the post-secondary institutions can step up to because we, we, I'm not sure how well known it is just how BC stands out across the country. We have a very differentiated post-secondary sector. So we have strengths in colleges, strengths in teaching universities and institutes, and of course uh, in research universities like Simon Fraser. But there's a real opportunity to harness that strength because as you said, as the business report that was just on said, there are going to be areas of the job market that may not recover. But on the other hand, there's going to be opportunities to create uh, new jobs in uh, a whole raft of different areas. And the key to creating those jobs and giving opportunities to those people who've been dislocated because of COVID-19 is going to be education. Education is going to be the, uh, the tool that's going to help people to uh, move into new jobs and hopefully level the playing field a little bit because, of course, COVID-19 has shown a lot of economic inequalities that if we can harness education, I think we can build a stronger uh, economy that will serve people a lot better. So that's, that's the hope. Uh, I think uh, a lot in the post-secondary sector are starting to think about the role they can play, and we're hoping that government is thinking of us because there's a partnership to be had. Uh, When when we're talking about post-secondary, and you kind of touched on this, the different forms of post-secondary, do you see them taking different roles in that getting a degree at SFU is much different than taking a two-year trades program? Absolutely, and I think there's going to be need right across the spectrum. I mean, there's new areas that will require research uh, universities to use their research and for for uh, for for uh, higher level degrees areas like uh, quantum computing uh, or agritech for example or fuel cell research all of which can help us achieve a greener economy as well as a stronger economy but there's huge needs in the healthcare sector we've seen uh, the needs exposed in the healthcare sector uh, in childcare in 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 new kinds of service industries certainly in the trades in value added industries that are going to call upon uh, non-degree programs, for example, certificates, diploma programs, things that can upskill people or help them make a transition. Uh, areas uh, in technology, for example, where women have been hugely underrepresented, there's an opportunity to get more women to move into those areas because we see how hard women have been hit by COVID-19. So many of the service jobs have been jobs that have been held by a large numbers of women who now may not find those jobs coming back, but through education and through uh, support from post-secondary institutions can find new jobs in areas that require technological uh, proficiency. And do you think this is sparked by the pandemic or were universities and post-secondary schools already doing this? Well, I think uh, in BC, the post-secondary sector has generally been doing a good job But I don't think we've been sort of in the moment of transformation that we may now be. And I think we're going to be asked to step up and play a larger role. And I think we can do that. You know, there are certain moments in history when uh, when society starts to think uh, that maybe there's a need for a change. I think there's a sense of interdependence that's come out of COVID-19, a sense that we're all in this together, a sense that public institutions need to play a role and a fear that we're going to have uh, a post-COVID-19 economy, which may exacerbate some of the inequalities and problems that have been exposed. 
but also a hope that we can do something about that. And I think education is the key to that. And I think this is a special moment. And this is a special week because this is where, where most in institutions, at least at SFU, we're graduating our, our, our class uh, for this year. We have a summer program that has higher enrollments than, than last year. So I think students are starting to see that education is the best insurance against uncertainty. And we're hoping that in partnership with governments and the private sector, we can really fire up the engine across the post-secondary sector to help build a stronger, greener, and more equitable economy going forward. Do you think that this could lead as well to permanent changes into how education, particularly university education, is delivered? In that I've been following following and watching uh, a lot of people quite frustrated saying they're people that with disabilities or with mobility issues that for years tried to have lectures online, tried to have some kind of distance learning. And we're always told that that couldn't be done. It simply wasn't possible. You had to be physically in the lecture hall or on the campus. Do you think we're going to see a permanent change there? Yeah, I think there are some silver linings uh, in, in the COVID-19 clouds. And the fact that, to, for example, universities have had to adapt to uh, virtual teaching, uh, I think we will come back to in-person teaching because it has value that can't be replaced. But I think some of the lessons we've learned about how to deliver programs, how to make them more accessible, will be translated into improving the way we teach. I think uh, also universities and the whole post-secondary system needs to be adaptable to the changing job. Market. So degrees will be suitable and important for some kinds of jobs, but certificates, diplomas, upgrades, uh, we're going to have to provide a full spectrum of different kinds of learning opportunities that meet the needs of students and look to the opportunities that are going to arise in a new job market. And how do you see universities or post-secondary uh, is it possible, is it a goal even to level the playing field in that for a lot of people, even trying to access that type of edu- education is cost prohibitive? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the federal government, uh, to their credit, uh, has increased significantly during COVID-19 some of the, the support they provided so students can uh, afford, even if they don't have job opportunities to come to university and other institutions. I do think that what we can do is look at a different approach to student financial aid that really targets that aid to those students who are most in need. And in fact, if you look at the amount of money that governments now allocate for student financial aid, it would be sufficient to meet the needs of, uh, of students who really have barriers to post-secondary. So I think it's a matter of reprofiling. Uh, we also, uh, of course, use a lot of co-op education. I think that is very important in helping students not only to learn about the job market, but also to earn some income, and that's another way to support students. Uh, compared to other countries, Canada is pretty accessible still. Um, but there's always improvements we can make on the, access- the affordability and accessibility side as well. All right, we'll leave it there. Andrew Petter, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it is a big day for BC Ferries. The Island Discovery, servicing the route between Texada Island and Powell River, and uh, another, the Island Aurora, both entering service. That one between Fort McNeil, Alert Bay, and Swintula Island. They are the first hybrid electric vehicles for the fleet. And joining us to talk a bit more about this is BC Ferries spokesperson, Deborah Marshall. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Uh, this is a big day uh, for BC Ferries. Uh, how are things going with bringing these new vessels into service? Things are going really well. You know, throughout the whole pandemic, we have been uh, training our crews and getting certification from Transport Canada. Uh, the project has been moving quite smoothly, which uh, we find is quite a success during this difficult time. 
What will passengers notice different if they are on these vessels? Uh, well, they are, uh, you know, they really are state-of-the-art. Uh, this first one, the Island Discovery, is replacing uh, a vessel that has served us very well for years, the North Island Princess. Uh, but uh, the North Island Princess is a 59-year-old ship, so certainly the technology is huge. And uh, they are hybrid electric vessels designed for full future electric operation uh, when we get the uh, shore infrastructure and uh, some funding becomes available. And any idea when or do you have a goal for when that will happen? Uh, you know, this whole COVID thing has put a bit of a wrench in that, so I don't have a timeline right now. But normally we run our vessels for, uh, you know, between 40 and 50 years. So uh, we certainly expect to be uh, moving towards full electric in the near future. And what about capacity as far as how will the capacity of the new vessels compare to what people and what passengers have seen on the older ones? Well, these vessels will carry uh, 47 vehicles and up to 392 passengers. And for example, the Quadra Queen 2 is able to carry, I believe it was uh, 38 uh, vehicles. So we will see some, uh, some extra capacity in there for our customers. And is that the number of vehicles, is that about the same or is it more or less than what uh, the previous vessels had? Uh, it's slightly more than the previous vessel, so, you know, that'll help in uh, situations where there might be overloads. So that's good news for customers. And what about people staying in their vehicles? I know that that's been relaxed during the pandemic. Will that still, will that be the rule as well on the newer vessels? Well, the newer vessels are actually open car ferries, so customers will always be able to stay in their vehicles. But yes, right now, Transport Canada has relaxed the regulation on the closed car decks, and uh, we are encouraging customers to stay in their cars when they're traveling with us right now. I wanted to talk to you as well about the mandatory use of face masks, which is starting on June 15th. There seems to be some confusion on what would happen if somebody shows up at a BC Ferries terminal to board a ferry but doesn't have a face mask. What would happen in that scenario? Uh, well, it is a new Transport Canada regulation that is coming into effect. We're, implement- uh, we're implementing that on uh, on June 15th. So it is a directive from our regulator. And uh, what we're advising customers is they have to be in possession of a face covering. They don't have to wear it unless they're in a situation on the vessel that they're not able to physical distance uh, two meters uh, between another passenger. But uh, if customers don't have a, a face covering, they won't be able to travel with us. Could it be a scarf, though? Say somebody has a scarf around their neck and says, I could turn this into a face covering. Would that be good enough? Yes, that would certainly be good enough as long as uh, as long as it can be tied around the person's uh, head or, their, you know, straps with loops or whatnot and at least two layers of fabric. So, yes, a scarf would certainly be acceptable. And then will it fall on employees of BC Ferries to police this? Or if there's somebody on a vessel that's within two metres of somebody else and isn't wearing a face mask, do BC Ferries employees then have to step in? Uh, well, you know, our, our uh, employees are certainly not the police. It's not their mandate. Uh, if uh, if the uh, employee witnessed a situation where a customer should be uh, donning some sort of uh, face covering, they could just politely tell the customer that it's time for them to put on their face covering. And do you anticipate any issues or what happens if somebody simply refuses or doesn't have a covering, has said maybe they had one, got on the ferry and then doesn't? Well, you know what, there might be a situation where an employee would have to call in their supervisor. But again, our employees are, uh, are not the police. 
we would ask that our customers do respect our employees. Uh, this is not a BC Ferry regulation. It is a Transport Canada regulation, and we must adhere to Transport Canada. And just before I let you go, do you anticipate, as people are kind of waiting for phase three and planning those staycations that uh, they've been told will uh, be allowed if the numbers stay low, uh, do you anticipate kind of that smooth transition from essential only travel to people getting back on the ferries? We certainly hope so. Uh, we're planning for that right now. Uh, we have reintroduced in service to the Southern Gulf Islands earlier this week. Uh, we reintroduced the Horseshoe Bay Departure Bay Run at about 50% capacity uh, last week. So, yeah, we're, we're certainly gearing up for that. All right. Uh, Deborah Marshall, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Deborah Marshall, a BC Ferries spokesperson. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, WorkSafe BC has released a list of guidelines when it comes to the film industry restarting in BC. It includes things such as performers have the right to refuse close contact with other performers, such as hugging, kissing, and stunts requiring close contact. It suggests that shifts be staggered so there aren't so many people on one location at one particular time. It also says to consider alternative methods to achieve film sequences that necessitate close contact between workers. There are a lot of different guidelines. So what will this actually look like? Let's bring in Prem Gill, the CEO of Creative BC. Prem, thanks so much for being here. Hi, Jill. How do you anticipate things looking when they start up again? Yeah, well, obviously they are going to look different. um, But I think based on the first impressions we've heard from the WorkSafe BC guidelines, it's very manageable. The industry is you know, a, a creative sector that has, uh, you know, is known to make pivots and adjustments for all kinds of reasons. And health and safety has always been a big part of the culture of television and filmmaking. And I think there's, uh, you know, there's going to be some specific hi- safety guidelines that the stakeholder sector here and in Los, An- Los Angeles is working on together, which will have more specifics on how to actually tackle some of these um, new protocols. So I think they will adjust and, um, you know, we are very hopeful that um, it will come back successfully. Uh, How do you think the industry will deal with the 14 days isolation for anybody that's coming in from outside of Canada? Well, I think they'll be doing it. You know, if if there's, um, you know, productions or talent coming up into Canada, right now those are the border regulations and restrictions and and they will be following them. And if they have valid work permits, they don't have any symptoms, they can cross the border and quarantine for 14 days. And again, it'll just become a different part of the planning process and the longevity of that process um, will be extended a little bit on this, uh, in this aspect. But, you know, at present, um, you know, anybody who is considering returning to Canada or coming up for a specific production is planning um, to build in the quarantine time. And the industry has been pretty hard hit, I think, to say the least, with the restrictions and with the shutting down because of COVID. I know people have talked about how animators have been able to maintain work in some cases and some areas areas of it. How hard of a hit has the industry taken? Yeah, the animation and visual effects industry and post-production largely have been working at home. So many of the companies... We have a larger sector here than people may realize. Up to you know seven thousand people work in visual effects, animation, and post. And their companies invested in enabling people to work from home, and many of them are working from home. And now 
We are all eager to see some production all over the world get started because those people also uh, will, especially in visual effects and post-production, you're reliant on production itself. In terms of production, yes, you know, the industry is completely paused. All right, well, we will leave it there. Uh, the guidelines are pretty pretty intense. Maybe that's not the, the best word. Uh, my question would be, are things going to look different when we see productions that are made in this post kind of bringing back after COVID type era? And one of the guidelines being for extras, for example, rather than have extras come in and do costumes and have to do, have to have contact with more people, maybe let the extras wear their own clothing in the background of the scenes. Uh, it also says uh, that they want to reduce the number of workers in large gatherings such as a video village and to make sure that there are limits of people there. So I'm curious, will we see more animated films in the future? Are we going to see more films like the movie Wild, where really most of the movie is just one person on a long angle lens? Seems like that could be a physically distanced type movie, but we shall have to wait and see. I think the good news is the guidelines have now been put out there and there is a movement to bring back filming, to bring back a very important industry here in BC. This is Mornings with Simi. Here was a statement released from uh, Canada's top doctor, Dr. Theresa Tam. She said on Sunday she is concerned about Canadians' mental health, saying that more Canadians have increased their consumption of alcohol and junk food since the beginning of the pandemic. And I think a lot of people can relate with that. Well, here we are now looking at possibly phase three of the reopening plan here in BC, maybe getting back to somewhat of a normal routine, trying to get back on track. How do we do that? Well, let's bring in Dr. Sandy Willis-Stewart from the School of Health and Exercise Sciences at UBC Okanagan. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, good morning. Thank you, Jill, for having me on. And uh, yeah, it's a very interesting and uh, something we need to be talking about. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think anyone's surprised by polling that shows Canadians are consuming more. We've gained a little weight during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what do you say to people who are now thinking, okay, I need to deal with this? Mm-hmm. No, it's it's definitely challenging and, and it's it's going to be different than it was before you know it's not going to be okay you know I used to go to the gym I'll just go back to the gym or whatever because every everything is changing and um, you know whether the gym's open fully or in a slightly modified version uh, so it's going to be different and I think we're we're very lucky that this is happening during the springtime. Um, we certainly maybe have a bit of weather and, and things like that on our side to help people get outside because I think that will be um, more of the new norm. People are going to have to find ways to be active, um, you know, from their home and not necessarily always in a, in a gym. Um, and I think the people that have being physically active, like who are runners or walkers or um, cyclists or whatever, they've maybe had a little bit of an easier time being active. But I think the people that have relied more on a, a gym program, um, I think maybe they're the ones that have been struggling more. So, and so what do you say to people too that might be feeling like they're in a slump? Maybe you have gained a few pounds, you're sad over the state of things, and, and you don't have that motivation to even start eating better or getting that exercise. Mm-hmm. No, I, definitely a challenge. And the hard thing is, is it's, it's got to come from the individuals. And it's it's just getting over that first time. You know, once you've done it once, you've gone out once, that really, really is the hardest step. 
And so we need messages. We need people, you know, hearing it from other people. They need those little um, reminders, those little probes, because then those are the little things that will just get them over that hump that, okay, I need to do this. I'm going today. And um, but but it's it's hard because if we're not out and about, then the chances of getting those bumps from our peers, our friends, our family are less. Uh, you know, people are watching TV or certainly on social media and stuff, but that's not necessarily where they're going to get those nudges to move. <laughs> so that's that's another barrier um, to to getting going. But the more things, like, I mean, if people are listening to you on the radio or or the messages that are coming from our um, health minister officers, if they're mentioning things like that, then there's that opportunity for more and more people to hear that and going, okay, I need to get going again. Uh, We have about a minute left. How important Mm -hmm. is routine? Very, actually. When people have that structure, they're more likely to do something. And so even if we are in this time of isolation, if people can put that structure, they get up, they make their bed, they get dressed, I'm writing exercise or preparing a nice meal into my day timer, it makes a huge difference. Because right there, there's something to be accountable. And if you don't have people, then use your schedule. So I highly recommend, like, writing down, what am I doing? What's my daily plan? And writing exercise in there. And the the neat thing, too, when we're not, say, traveling to work, we actually have more time to fit it in. So if we use that time for exercise, then that would be awesome. (laughs) Change the commute into your exercise routine. Exactly, yes. Great advice. Uh, Dr. Willis Stewart, we'll leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. All right, Dr. Sandy Willis-Stewart with the School of Health and Exercise Sciences at UBC Okanagan. Very good advice for getting back into that healthy routine.